what I wanted to do is um, I wanted to go over the book Education, just a couple of chapters, a few chapters from the book Education. And there's some stuff that she says there that I want to apply to us in the end, kind of find a way to apply it to how it is that um, it impacts us as, as men. The interesting thing is we had a, at GYC, we had a, um, a, uh, a kind of like a question and answer type of thing to which men were invited to, to come. And then they asked me to be one of the panelists. And I thought, as we analyzed the whole thing, we said, you know what? Typically, men don't come to men-only type of events. It just doesn't happen, you know? Yeah. Yeah. The, you know, the ladies are totally different. We had just across the room from us, we had the ladies having their own thing, and it was just like a flock of ladies. Yeah, they come together. They talk. They like to share their problems. Men don't typically do that. So then we went there. We had quite a bit of guys, and we were surprised. And then we started kind of going at it. And it was a question and answer forum. And uh, I sat there on the panel. I was supposed to be one of the experts or whatever. And the funniest thing in the world, I was just uh, sitting back laughing. The guys would ask a question. They would say, hey, so what do you think about you know, this? Because I think that, and then they'd go on and they start actually giving you the answer to their question. <laughs> and I thought, that's just the way guys are, man. That's just the way they are. So what I wanted to do is go over these things. Um, I think that in the end, the principles apply to, 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 uh, to, to all of us. And I don't want to deal with, um, um, I want to deal with kind of general things that, 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 uh, that kind of are pointed out in this book, and I want to see how they apply to us, okay? So I want to cover, th I want to cover a few things together. Um, and the first one that I want to go over is I want to draw principles from the lives of uh, men in the Bible. The men in the Bible that I, we, I want to look at this, uh, this afternoon are the lives of Joseph, Daniel, Moses, Elisha, and Paul. And what I want to do is I want to look at through this, we're just going to kind of go over the chapters called Lives of Great Men, go over certain characteristics that they had and then see how they actually apply to us where we're at, okay? Um, it is in this book, the book Education, that you hear the, um, the famous quotation that all of us are very um, familiar with, which is found in page 57. It says, the greatest want of the world is a want of men, men who in their inmost souls are true and honest, men who will not be bought or sold, men who do not fear to call sin by his right name, men whose conscience is as true to duty as a needle is to the pole, men who will stand for the right though the heavens fall. Now, a lot of times this is applied to men and women. It's a generic sense. But if you look at the context of the, of the uh, book, it's dealing with, I believe, specifically the male gender. And here, um, the world needs just a few good men who will be like the Elishas, like the Pauls, like the uh, Moseses. And that's kind of what I want to go over with. I'm going to just read a little bit, then I'm going to write on the board some things, and we're going to try to see how, in the end, all this stuff ties together, yeah? She starts off by saying, um, sacred history presents many illustrations of the results of true education. It presents many noble examples of men whose characters were formed under divine direction and whose lives were a blessing to their fellow men and who stood in the world as representatives of God. If you were to ask uh, the question, what is it that God would like to see in men? Here we find, she says, that in the lives of these men, they all had something in common. And number one, the first thing that they had in common was... The first thing that they had in common was 
that they lived to be a blessing to others. Right? First thing is that they lived to be a blessing to others. And second, their second thing is they lived to represent or represent God. Those two things. How is it that you can be like a real man? That's the kind of question. And, and, I, and when, the funniest thing is when they asked me to do the seminar, I thought to myself, man, this is the hardest seminar I ever have to give. How in the world do you talk to someone about being a man? And then I looked at this guy who's all buff, and I said, this guy should do it. What is, what is manliness? You know, what is manliness? And finally someone said, hey, you have three sons, so that if there's any man, you're a man because you got three sons. And, and, and I was just laughing. This is so hard. So I was asking the question, what does it mean to be a man? I think to be a man in God's eyes is to be someone who, because, uh, because of, uh, of the principle that lies within them, because of the character that they have, they live to be a blessing to others and they live to represent God. Now, when you throw this on the board, huh, sorry? Yeah, that's the definition of man. When you throw this on the board, it looks generic. Yeah, right. I mean, of course, that's what, that's what it means to be a man. But let's look at the lives of Elisha, all these guys, and we're going to see how it, how it actually becomes difficult to, to, to follow these uh, two things. The, yeah, it, it's very hard. And then at the end it says this, that many times it's, they're, they're called to do these two things, but it is specifically important, it is specifically important in time of crisis. So all of this is what manliness is, but more specifically, it is to be these two things in the time of crisis. The first example that she gives is the example of Joseph. It says, Joseph bore alike the test of adversity and of prosperity. Okay? I wish we had a bigger board. So you have Joseph... Things that, defo- things that define Joseph is that he bore, he bore like the test of adversity and of prosperity. Adversity, prosperity, it was the same thing to him. It didn't, it, didn't, it didn't change who he was. He didn't change because of circumstances, right? It says, Joseph bore like the test of adversity and prosperity. The same fidelity was manifested in the, in, in, in the palace of Pharaoh as it was in the prisoner's cell. In his childhood, Joseph had been taught the love and the fear of God. Often in his father's tent under Syrian stars, he had been told the story of the night visions at Bethel, of the ladder from heaven to earth and the descending and the ascending of angels. There are different reasons why Joseph was able to bear adversi- adversity and prosperity. The first reason why Joseph was able to do this is because of his understanding of God and because of God's word. She says here that from the very beginning, there was something that Joseph had that enabled him to do this, and that was that he, when he was young, since he was a little boy, his father would tell him, hey, this is what happened to me at Bethel. I was running away as a fugitive, and as I was, uh, I was sleeping there, um, with my head on a rock as a pillow, I saw angels descending and ascending into heaven. There's something that he had, a deep experience with God and a deep experience with God's word that enabled him to do this. 
But there was another thing that prepared Joseph to, be, to, be, to bear like adversity and prosperity. It says, the shepherd boy tending his father's flock, Joseph's pure and simple life had favored the development both of physical and mental power by communion with God through nature and the study of the great truths handed down as sacred trust from, his fa- from father to son, he gained strength of mind and firmness of principle. The other thing that he had that allowed him to do that is, was his lifestyle. Sure, no problem. Was his lifestyle. So these are the things that allowed Joseph to bear like the test of prosperity and the test of adversity. Number one was his belief in God. That's his core. And secondly was that he set himself up. He set himself up through his lifestyle to be able to deal with these different types of things. Now, when you look at, um, when you look at your life, when I look at my life, often we have to ask ourselves a question, what kind of a lifestyle we're living? And I'm not talking here about, um, I'm not talking about the general, because when you talk about, when you think about lifestyle, you think about um, you know, what type of entertainment you're used to, to, to enjoying, what type of recreation you're, you, you get to do. We're not talking about that. We're, I'm talking about lifestyle as in what type of habits we develop in our daily life, right? What type of habits we develop in our daily life. Joseph set aside in his daily life, Joseph set aside in his daily life, first of all, he set aside in his daily life time to be out in nature. Secondly, he set in his daily life time to have manual labor. And then thirdly, he set aside in his daily life a, a means by which God could communicate to him, a means by which God could communicate to him in any aspect of his life. And we're going to go back to that, to that very thing, any aspect of his life, God communicating to him. So that Joseph was not just experiencing communion with God through studying the Bible, but Joseph was experiencing communion with God every single minute of his life. And that allowed Joseph to have the ability to bear alike prosperity and adversity, which is actually a hard thing to do. If you get too much prosperity, you get a big head, you start floating up in the air. If you get too much adversity, what ends up happening? We just like want to give up, right? So this is what prepared Joseph, those two things. Number one was his lifestyle, and number, one was, and number two was his foundation with his relationship with God, that whole thing. She continues on by saying this. In the bitter life of a stranger and a slave, amidst the, the sights and the sounds of vice and the allurements of heathen worship, a worship surrounded with all the attractions of wealth and culture and pomp and royalty, Joseph was steadfast. He had learned the lesson of obedience to duty, faithfulness in every station. From the most lowly to the most, ex, to the most exalted, he trained every power for the highest service. Because of the lifestyle that he lived as a shepherd boy, and because of his theological understanding, anything that Joseph did, anything that Joseph did, he trained himself to give the highest service. And that's basically what we kind of get from that. Now, I want to go on and talk a little bit about Daniel. Daniel says this, we know the story of Daniel, right? He was from a very early age. He was taken captive. Um, he was taken captive very early age, and then he was given to Pharaoh. And his responsibility was to take over Egypt, right? Or to take over Babylon, sorry. Here it says this. 
under such circumstances, through the very humiliations of Israel's departure from his commandments had invited, God gave to Babylon evidence of his supremacy, of holiness, of his requirements, and of the sure results of obedience. And his testimony he gave as alone it could be given through those who, had, who, still, had, sorry, who still had held fast their loyalty. The second thing or the thing that we learned from the life of Daniel is this. The thing that we learned from the life of Daniel is this. That there is but one way in which God can communicate to us who he is. And that's actually, it goes right along with the sermon that, uh, that was preached today, right? It says that they, you know, when we were reading that, when, we were, when I was hearing that sermon, and I was reading ahead and I saw that they came to see Jesus, but not Jesus only, immediately in my mind, I'm thinking like, how in the world did they go to see? I was like, that's the problem with our church. People go there not just to see Jesus, but to see other people. And then when he twisted it, I thought to myself, man, that's so powerful how you and I actually should be something that people can see, not just Jesus, right? I don't know if that happened to anyone else, but. And it actually goes exactly with what it's saying here, that God has a, has a need to communicate to us who he is, and how he communicates that to us, or how he communicates that to the world, is by giving them an example through us. And so it says here, Babylon had taken over Israel. Israel is now showing the world how weak their God is in the, in the eyes of Babylon. And their God says, even in this situation, I'm going to show, I'm going to show you through Daniel the evidence of his supremacy, of his holiness, of his requirements, and this testimony he gave as it alone could be given through those who still ha held fast their loyalty. What God has, right? We have a the same situation here. The world is taken captive by Satan. There's no way that people can see God for who he is, so God says, look, I'm going to use faithful men to show that. So that's what he does with the life of Daniel. Daniel and his companions, so that's God's requirements are shown through holy men. Daniel and his companions had been faithfully instructed in the principles of God's word. They had learned to sacrifice their earth, the earthly to the spiritual to seek the highest good. What is it that it stands out about Daniel's, uh, Daniel's, Daniel's experience? Is this, that first of all, they sought the greatest good. And secondly, they learned to sacrifice the earthly to the heavenly. What Daniel's life teaches us is that if you and I want to be a want to be great men, used by God, demonstration to the people of what God is like. We need to come to the point in our experience where rather than seeking our best interests, we ask ourselves the question, what is the greatest good? Sometimes the greatest good does not actually benefit us. In the case of Daniel, it didn't always benefit him, right? The greatest good for Daniel was to show that God was still supreme above any other king, any other kingdom. 
That ended up getting him thrown into the lion's den, right? In, his, in, in the case of his three friends, thrown into the fiery furnace. But they didn't, seek, they didn't seek their best good. They sought the best good of the people, of or, or the best good period of God. And so that caused them. That, caused, that was the underlying foundation of why they did what they did. And secondly, it caused them to sacrifice the earthly to the heavenly. I mean, can you imagine if uh, you go into a foreign country as a stranger, as an immigrant, and then you are given the top position that you can ever achieve, the highest position you can ever achieve, except that of being king. You have the ability to protect that in any way, shape, or form that you can, because that's how powerful you are. But instead of doing that, you sacrifice all that you have because you understand that the earthly always has to be sacrificed to the heavenly. That's what Daniel did. He sacrificed the earthly to the heavenly. And that's the only way that Daniel could have been successful at what he did was by sacrificing his earthly to the heavenly. Throughout the reign of successive monarchs, the downfall of nations and the establishment of a rival kingdom, such were his wisdom and statesmanship. So perfect here it says, his tact, his courtesy, his genuine goodness of heart combined with fidelity to principle. That even his enemies were forced to confess that they could find nothing wrong with him. While honored by men with responsibilities of the court and the secrets of the kingdom, he was honored by God as his ambassador. What does he teach us is that he was God's ambassador. Right? What Daniel teaches us is that God is looking for men to be his ambassadors. And that is actually the only reason in the context of this chapter, that is the only reason why Daniel was able to outlast all the kings. You had a king, that king was overthrown by a rival king, which was overthrown by a rival king, which was overthrown by a rival king. But as long as Daniel lived, he was always the second or the third, whatever it was. He was always the next in command to the king. Why? Because God was trying to establish in this world his own ambassadors. God is looking for men, and he's asking for men to be his ambassadors. But we can only be ambassadors as we sacrifice earthly to the heavenly and as we seek the greatest good. That's what, that's what it means to represent God. The next one is... Um, The life of Elisha. And this is what I want to, this is the one thing that Elisha points out. That I want to, that I want to read to you guys. And it says this. Elisha received training in his life's common duties. In order to direct wisely, he must learn to obey. The lesson that he teaches us is that in order to direct, we must first learn how to obey. That is something that's hard for us to do, isn't it? I mean, you find so many times people who want to be leaders, who want to be directors, who want to be in charge, but people who don't, fo- because people, because men don't follow this principle, you have, you have the, the result of this is that you have women who are, beat, who are beaten by their husbands, you have uh, people who hate their, uh, you have, you have uh, 
um, employees who hate their employers. You just have all sorts of chaos. As a matter of fact, you even have um, feminism, right? Feminism is a result of a violation of this principle. Men abuse what they have, which is, more, uh, which is physical strength. They abuse what they have in order to make people submit to them, in order to direct. But here it says, Elisha teaches us that in order to, to learn how to direct, we must first learn how to obey. And that's the lesson that Elisha learned in his life. He learned what it meant to obey and to follow Elijah so that when Elijah left, he could follow in the, prophets of, in, in the footsteps of prophet Elijah as Elisha. When you look at the life of Elisha, he was first of all a rich person, rich man. And when the prophet Elijah came to Elisha, he, he, uh, he extended to him the offer to become a prophet. He took the offer and over and over and over again, he was given the opportunity to go back. Given the opportunity to go back. And the craziest thing is that when you read the Bible, how is it, do you guys know, how is it that, uh, that Elisha started his ministry as a prophet? Does anyone remember? The Bible clearly says what were his, his tasks, his responsibility. You guys know? The Bible says that he was to wash the hands of Elijah. You guys remember reading that? He poured water over the hands of Elijah. Can you imagine this guy? He's the associate prophet. And in his responsibilities are to wash the hands of the prophet. That's what you are. He waited on to be a servant, right? Someone told me that sumo wrestlers, that they're so big that when they go to the bathroom, they can't wipe themselves. And, and this is what I heard. Yeah. And what happens is, when you have the up-and-coming sumo wrestlers, they got to get mentored under one of the senior, senior sumo wrestlers. And they learn how to become a sumo wrestler by wiping the behinds of the senior sumo wrestlers. And as they do that, they learn the humility that is required. Because to be a sumo wrestler is not just about wrestling. But there's something that goes along with that, a whole culture. And that's, what it, that's, that's what the process that they have to go through. Elisha teaches us that if we are first to be directors, to be leaders, we must first follow and understand and learn what it means to obey, to be subjected to someone else in order to have others subjected to us. Now, what is it that this teaches us? What is it that this teaches or what is it that it taught him? It taught him, it taught him, it taught him never to divert from purpose. Do you see how those two are connected? It taught him never to divert from purpose. When I was, uh, when I was like 10 years old, during the summer, my dad got me a job, and um, he got me a job with uh, one of the church members who was a mechanic, and I thought, man, this is going to be great. I'm going to learn how to be like a man, even though I'm 10 years old. I'm going to tell people, my, my friends, that I'm a mechanic, and so we roll. The guy comes to pick us up about 9 in the morning, and he takes us to his shop, and the, he, I didn't know he was actually a body mechanic guy, you know, body, uh, the cars, the bodies of the cars. And he gets us to his shop, and I'm thinking, I'm going to get to paint the cars. You know, I'm going to get to detail the cars inside. 
He gets a bucket of water with sandpaper, and he says, I want you to sand this car, all of it. And I thought to myself, okay. So I get and I start just rubbing the thing. And he's like, no, that's not how you sand it. And he, he, he pulls me aside and he teaches me how, how to sand the car. And after I did the door, I was already tired. I'm like, man, I'm going to be sanding this thing for the whole day. So I gave him the benefit of the doubt and I sanded the car. He came back, looked at it like four or five times and said, you're not doing a good job. You've got to do it this way. And then he tried to make, he was working with me. He said, you know, like in karate kid, wax on, wax off type of thing. And so I'm thinking like, this guy's going to teach me karate. And I do that the first day. Next day I come back, he has another car for me to sand. I come back the next day, he's got another car for me. And I'm thinking, when am I going to get to paint the cars? I want to paint the cars. After a week, the guy would come and we just would not open the door. (laughs) My dad was at work, my mom was at work, my brother and I were just like, just be quiet. He can't open the door. We quit after about a week. He told my dad, and they were laughing about it at church. We had a purpose to become auto mechanics at the age of 10, but that purpose was diverted because we were unwilling to obey the directions that the chief auto mechanic had for us. And you see what happens is that Elisha had to deal with the difficulty of being called to be a prophet and then having in his mind an idea of what a prophet should be, what a prophet should do, and then have that all thrown to the ground by holding a little thing of water and saying, are your hands clean, sir? Do I need to do it? You want me to go get something for you? And by doing that all the way up until Elijah went up to heaven. That's what it taught him. It taught him never to divert from his purpose. And it is something that you see for in the end of their experience together. Time and time again, Elijah says, the Lord has called me to come over here. Do you want to stay back? He says, I'm going to continue with you as long as you live and as long as I live. It taught him that. It is here that you get, it is under this context that you get what is to me the most profound sentence that has ever entered into my mind. I want you to listen to this. Every act of life, every act of life is a revelation of character. Every act of life is a revelation of character. Everything that you do reveals who you are. Now you have to stop and think about this. Because there are who you are is divided up into two categories right? That's who you don't want to be, and that's who you want to be, right? So, there's a, I got to give myself some arms. There's someone that in my mind, in my mind, I have an image of who I want to be, who I want to be as a husband, who I want to be as a preacher, who I want to be as a son, who I want to be as a, a friend, things that I want to be. And so, if I'm with my friends, I will act a certain way because I want to be a certain kind of friend to them. Um, If they'll ask me to pick them up at the airport, I'll pick them up from the airport. If they ask me to spend the night at my house, I'll let them spend the night at my house because I want to be a certain type of friend. Now, these things that I want to be, they're not necessarily who I am. Like, let me give you the example of of, um, taking someone to the airport. I used to live by the airport. And... Oftentimes, people would come and they'd ask me to take them to the airport. I said, okay, sure, I'll take you to the airport. And I said, what time's your flight? And then they would give me some ridiculous time, like, my flight's at 6, it's an international flight, so I have to be there two hours ahead of time. 
you live about 30 minutes away, but it, just in case there's traffic at three in the morning, we have to leave at 2.30. And you're thinking to yourself, what in the world, right? But I have a check mark here of who I want to be. I want to be a good friend. So I'll say, all right, next time I just won't answer the phone when he calls, but this time I'm gonna take him to the airport. So he'll come, I'll wake up at 2.30 in the morning and take this guy to the airport. That's who I want to be as a friend, but it's not who I am as a person. In other words, all of these things, unselfishness for the sake of other people, right? That's required in order to, to do that. You have to be unselfish, not worry about your sleep for the sake of others. Unselfishness that prompted that action does not define who I am in reality. I'm not really an unselfish person because that same night when I come home and I'm laying down in bed, my wife's expecting our third child, and my wife's on her side and she'll say, Israel, can you go get me a cup of water? You know what I'm gonna say? I'm gonna say, are you sure you're thirsty? You know that if you drink water, you're gonna have to go to the bathroom, right? Like in the middle of the night. And I'll sit there in bed trying to convince her that she's not thirsty until finally I'll say to myself, it's faster for me to go get the water than to not to convince her. So I'm not a, selfish, a self, I'm not a selfless person. I'm a selfish person. So this is who I want to be, but, it, but it, I want to be a good friend, but I'm not a, self, a selfless person. And there are the things that I don't want to be. Sometimes I'll get, uh, I'll have a conversation with my wife or my wife and I will be talking or my kids or a friend or whatever. And as we're talking, something will be said that gets me upset. And I just don't like how they said it. And these things, I might not say anything to them. I might go home and on my way home, I'm going to get upset. And this is, some, this is a person that sometimes you see, sometimes you don't see, but that's the person who I am. And these two things end up composing, making up who I really am. So that sometimes I'm someone that I don't want to be, and sometimes through the grace of God, you'll act in a way that you want to act, right? That makes up who you want to be. But no matter what, every single thing that you do falls into one of these two categories and it reveals who you really are when you get up in the morning how you make your bed if you make your bed it reveals who you are how you dress reveals who you are how you speak to the waitress reveals who you are how you speak to the person that's bagging your groceries it reveals who you are and god wants us to be aware of who we are that is what elisha teaches us he teaches us that only as we are fully aware of ourselves can we be fully capable men that are able to direct others, that will never divert from the mission that God has given to us, that in the end will be ambassadors for God. Let's move on to the life of Moses. What does the life of Moses teach us? Moses, his story was, at a very early age, even earlier than the life of Daniel and Joseph, he was taken away from his house, right? And note this, that in the 12 years that he lived with his mom, he was fully prepared for life. That's, an amaz that's amazing. As a, as a new parent, that is just ridiculously amazing to have a mother that is that powerful and that capable. You guys should go and write some letters to your moms. Moses, at a young age, was, taking away, was taken away from home. And even though his mother had taught him what it was that God expected from him, he had his own ideas of how it was that he was going to accomplish that, okay? 
And so Moses, throughout his entire life, always wanted to follow God's will. Even when he killed that Egyptian, he was doing it because he thought he was following God's will, right? Delivering Israel from the hand of Egypt. But what Moses teaches us is powerful. Notice what it says here in the book Education, page 62. It says, in the wilds of Midian, this is after he left, in the wilds of Midian, Moses spent 40 years as a keeper of sheep, apparently cut off forever from his life's mission. He was receiving the discipline essential for its fulfillment. Moses is thinking now, I have been called by God to deliver Israel out of Egypt, but my hopes for accomplishing that purpose have gone down the drain because I'm no longer able to do that. While at the same time, God is preparing him for that very thing, which he thinks he has failed. And this is what it says. This, I, I actually read this just this morning, and it just blew me away. It says, wisdom to govern an ignorant and undisciplined multitude must be gained through self-mastery. Let that sink in for a while. First, let me explain it this way. Moses thought, Moses thought, he teaches us the lesson of self-mastery. Yes, sorry, 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 sorry. Um, Moses teaches the lesson of self-mastery. When uh, Moses was in his mind preparing to deliver Israel out of Egypt. He thought that he was prepared because he knew, I mean, Moses knew how to, he knew how to direct an army. That's what he was trained for. But all of this time he was thinking, man, my, my ability to maneuver an army, an army, my ability to set up a defense, my ability to know military taxi, tactics on how to kill people is going to help me in my purpose. While God is saying, Moses, you're not going to be running an army. You're going to be running a multitude. There's a difference between a multitude and an army. The multitude that you are going to be running is, first of all, ignorant. They don't know what in the world they really need to know. And secondly, they're not disciplined like an army. If you have a soldier, a soldier is not ignorant on how to have combat, hand-to-hand -hand combat. They'll know exactly what to do and how to do it. Uh, you know, Sebastian was in, 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 the, in the Marines, and so oftentimes I would mess around with him and I would ask him, hey, if you're really a true Marine, then what would you do if I do? And I'll do something, you know, and then he'll do this move on me and throw me on the ground. I say, all right, all right, I believe you, I believe you. And one time he, we were messing around, and, and I was asking him, if someone pulled a gun, just straight pulled a gun on you while you're in the car, what, what would you do? If it was me, I'd hit the gas, or I'd go crazy, I'd start screaming or something, right? And then he tells me his little move, I'm not going to tell you because, you know, we don't want to expose secret intelligence, but, he, you know, he tells me this thing, and I realize these guys, you know, uh, when I thought about Marines, I just thought, hey, just send them out there, they're crazy, they, they don't care if they're going to die, because you know, in the movies, they just scream and shoot. So that's what I thought, and then I thought, you know, these guys have been trained, they're not ignorant on how to quickly and effectively neutralize the target, right? They know how to do that. 
And on top of that, they have the discipline to hold the line even in the face of danger. But it is not so with a multitude. I guarantee you yesterday, if a tornado was to hit that place that we were in, everybody would have been running. But if you were in an army and they said, attention, no one would run, right? There's a difference between a multitude and an army. And while Moses was preparing to train and to lead an army, God was saying, look, you're going to be training and leading a multitude. And so he says, you need to learn one lesson. That is the lesson of self-mastery. Why is that he needed to learn the lesson of self-mastery? Because you can't control other people, but you can control yourself. And that's what Moses teaches us. We are not in charge of armies. We are not in charge of armies. You cannot marry someone and then have that person be your soldier and you're going to be their general. They have their own mind. You cannot be in, in a school and have a group of friends and be their general and have them be your soldiers. It's not going to work. And so Moses says, teaches us, you need to learn how to control yourself, have self-mastery. How is it that he learned self-mastery? How is it that he learned self-mastery? While he was in Midian, while he was in the wilderness of Midian, Moses was exposed to the presence of God. Notice this. Amidst the solemn majesty of the mountain solitudes, Moses was alone with God. Everywhere the Creator's name was written, Moses seemed to stand in his presence and to be overshadowed by his power. Here, his self-sufficiency was swept away. The life of Moses, when he became a shepherd, he was exposed to God and everything, everything that was around him. In nature, he saw God. In the trees, he saw God. In the sheep, he saw God. Everywhere God revealed himself, Moses, I am here. And this caused Moses to get a sense of realization that God is everywhere. You cannot get rid of God. And so he understood that God was everywhere. Right? He understood that God was everywhere. When you read the book of Hebrews chapter 11, the Bible says that by faith Moses, by faith Moses forsook Egypt and he was not afraid of the king's wrath because he endured as seeing him who is invisible. He saw him who was invisible. And when he saw, when he saw the invisible God, he could care less about the, the power of the visible king. Now, when you think about there are people that you ought to be afraid of, right? Like, I will not get in a car with someone who's not afraid of death. I just won't get, go ahead. You go by yourself. I won't get, a teenager just got their license. I will not get in the car with them unless I'm driving, because they're going to kill you, right? They're going to kill you. People who are not afraid are dumb. They just don't have it all there. There are people that you are to be afraid of. If you see, if you, if you meet Tim Riesenberger, you guys know Tim Riesenberger, the big buff dude? You see him in the alley, man. You better be afraid of that guy. He's scary, right? You ought to be afraid of them. The king, the pharaoh, was someone that you are to be afraid of. I mean, the guy is the most powerful king in the world. He can wipe you out with just his word. But Moses was not afraid of the king, of Pharaoh, because he had already seen God. And it says, if God is on my side, if I have seen God, everyone else, they're wimps, right? They're wimps. So that's what kept Moses going. And so it is, if you see God, as Moses saw God, if I see him, then there is nothing on this earth that will make us afraid. Nothing on this earth that will make us afraid. What did it cause him to do? It caused him 
to give up whatever it is that he needed to give up. It caused him to do crazy things that in the eyes of society, just they did not understand. It caused him to act crazy because he was acting holy through a different reality. So these are the things, we're almost running out of time. These are the, the we're not going to go over the life of Paul. These are the things that we learn from the life of Moses, Elisha, Daniel, and Joseph. First of all is that God is looking for men who will alike bear adversity and prosperity. You won't get puffed up with prosperity. You won't get weighed down with adversity. How is it that you do that? You accomplish that by having internalized the word of God and knowing and understanding your relationship with God. Secondly, by the lifestyle that you live. If we are not, if we are not living a lifestyle, developing habits that will prepare us for the trials that are ahead, then we will not be ready to, 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 to be like Joseph. Secondly, Daniel teaches us that God re wants men to be his ambassadors. But how is it that God expects us to be his ambassadors? We can only be God's ambassadors as we seek not our own good, but as we seek the greatest good, and as we learn to sacrifice earthly stuff to the heavenly stuff. We're not going to get a job just so that we can get money, because that's going to benefit ourselves. We're going to get a good job so that we can create the best amount of good for others, and we're going to sacrifice at all costs what is necessary, what is necessary that is earthly in order to gain what is heavenly, not just for ourselves, but for others. That is how we become ambassadors of God. And as we do this, then we show to others the requirements of God. Elisha teaches us that every single act is the revelation of character. Whatever we do, how we do our ties, how we dress ourselves, how we eat, how we speak to other people, reveals who we are. There are things that we want to be and things that we don't want to be. And all of this is combined by every and is shown by every single thing that we do. Elisha teaches us that in order to be leaders, we must first learn not just to be followers, but to be submitted to God and to the authority that God gives to people above us. And secondly, that we are never to divert from the purpose that God has given to us. So that if you, in your heart, you know God wants you to be a minister, God wants you to be a doctor, a lawyer, whatever it is, no matter how great the challenge is, you will not divert from that purpose. And then Moses teaches us that the greatest battle ever fought is the battle of self. We must learn how to gain victory over ourselves, mastery over ourselves, so that by the time that God asks us, he calls us, to face difficult challenges that are scary, we would know that God is everywhere, and because we have seen the invisible God, we're not afraid of any other challenge that we have to confront. That's kind of what I see from the lives of men. I'll invite you to read the book, uh, the chapter, The Lives of Great Men, um, where you'll, I'm sure you'll be able to draw greater insights. But for now, let's end with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you that we have an example of men in the Bible who revealed to us what it means to be like Jesus. But on top of that, you've given to us the greatest example of all, the man who had in himself all of these characteristics, which is Jesus Christ himself. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be men of God, men who are willing and able to be your ambassadors to this world. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.